Christy, your host, and I am here today with a very exciting interview with Tess, our, our staff writer at Witchology, and we are going to be talking about the ethics and spirituality of insect taxidermy. I have paired this interview with a book review that is also captures that kind of Victorian curiosity for different cultures and different things and all the kind of morbid and, and weird. So let's start with a bit of a summary. Welcome to Dr. McCreeball's World of Weird, a creepy collection of the odd and eccentric you could not wish to find. This book has been curated by, it's non-fiction, um, it's been curated by Dr. Layla McCreeball, the great-granddaughter of the explorer and philosopher Dr. McCreeball. It doesn't say what his first name is, <laughs> um, but anyway, Dr. Layla found Dr. McCreeball's old notebooks and manuscripts while clearing out the attic of their family home and this book explores some of those curious things found within those manuscripts. Dr McCreeball lived during the reign of Queen Victoria and this is where he started exploring the globe and cataloguing what he found. Now I'm going to start by addressing the elephant in the room and that elephant is the one that stinks of colonialism. <laughs> uh, when it comes to these Victorian explorers and looking at what they found and what they collected um, I get really mixed feelings. Like, we learnt a lot about different places and peoples through through this, but, you know, at what cost? It's never clear how uh, respectful these explorers were. Explorers in inverted commas, do we want to say? I don't know. Um, but we don't know how respectful they were to the indigenous peoples that they, they met or how respectful they were to the traditions and cultural practices their, you know, inverted commas, curiosities came from. It has a little bit of a freak show vibe, you know, that doesn't really sit right with me to be honest but that being said I do still you know I still want to read and learn about these things and I, I like to do that but I think it's important to do so with a mindfulness of the cost of them um you know as well as potential for inaccuracies misinterpretations or deliberate reinterpretations of of these items and the practices um, and what they really mean to the people's you know to whom they belong do you see what I'm saying now, um, this book mostly features, it does mostly feature items from the UK and Europe, um, but there are some, like, masks and some other things or other items discussed in there that just, I don't know, they feel a little bit, feel a little bit problematic. Um, it is beautifully illustrated, I will give it that. Um, it's illustrated by a person named uh, Celsius Pictor, which is an excellent name, I have to say. And it's really interesting to read about the magical objects especially there's um, a whole sort of section on it's not very it's not a very long book um it's sort of a four sized um maybe like a centimeter thick so it's not it's not a huge book um but most you know most of it is is illustrations which is re really enjoyable so yeah it's really interesting to read about the magical objects and death rituals um you know because we know the victorians are obsessed with death you know i did really enjoy that I do like as well the kind of curated nature of it. You know, there are little notes from the great granddaughter dotted about. And um, I like that it kind of gives you an insight into their family history. You know, it kind of feels like you're kind of, I don't know, um, discovering it yourself. You know, like, oh, I'm clearing out the attic and now I've, I, you know, I found this thing from relative um, long past, you know. That's quite nice. I'm not sure it's something I would have bought myself. Um, if I was going to buy it, it would be purely for the illustrations I'm not sure that I, just because of the, the challenge around, you know, where did this information come from? Did he collect any of these objects? Did he steal them? You know, and I don't mean that in any disrespectful way to to him, but, you know, you just, you can't trace it, is, is my point. 
So it's uh, two stars from me, I'm afraid. Sorry, Dr. McCreevil. I just, I can't, I can't trace back where it kind of came from. I don't know. There's no references in it. It's just kind of going from, from the notes that were found. Um, I, I don't know what the accuracy is. I mean, I could probably, you know, cross-reference it with other, other things and like more academic, but I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Enjoyable for the illustrations though, so I will give it that. Running a small business in today's economic landscape is no mean feat. Even if you love what you do, the constantly shifting social media algorithms can make it tricky for small witchy businesses to get seen by their perfect customers. Photography, product design, bookkeeping, emails, ugh, everything that goes into making your business work is enough without having to worry about SEO, backlinks and advertising as well. We believe in the power and magic of the witch economy and that's why we created Coven Market a virtual directory of the best witchy businesses, crafters, artists, tarot readers, and shops. It's designed to elevate your platforms and provide you with the backlinks to boost your SEO. Find out more information at witchologymagazine.com forward slash coven hyphen market hyphen subscription. My guest this week is Witchology's very own Tess Wood. As well as being staff writer at Witchology, Tess is a herbalist and insect taxidermist. From foraging and creating herbal remedies for friends and family to setting insects in botanical themed frames inspired by Victorian artwork and floriography, Tess's passion for the natural world is exercised throughout all her practices. So welcome Tess, thank you for being here. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> this is incredibly exciting. So Tess is here to talk to us about her practice as an insect taxidermist and the ethics and spirituality surrounding this practice. So Tess, tell us how, like, what got you started on this taxidermy journey? Oh, man. Um, so it probably starts as far back as, you know, my dive into being a witch before I knew I was. I think as a child, I was always into the macabre. And something that really stuck out to me was being in nature. And with, with that comes uh, being surrounded by animals and in, primarily insects. I was always fascinated by insects as a child, you know, whether it was watching anthills or um, collecting snails that I would bring inside that you know my mom was not exactly thrilled by um, and and it was just I spent a lot of time in my garden as a kid and I really really enjoyed the intricacies and the idea that there was this whole small world out there um, that a lot of people didn't really like you know a lot of people don't aren't comfortable with the creepy crawly aspect of what insects and invertebrates are um, but it always really fascinated me um, to the point where my family knew my obsession was so deep that they would actually collect dead bugs found in windowsills or in gardens and put them in um, back in the 90s when you'd go to the arcade you'd have these like little uh, toys and they'd come in these clear round uh, little containers and they would save those on a piece of cotton and like glue them shut for me so I had these like little preserved dead insects and I had like an entire collection of, of like bumblebees and moths that were found. Um, but my favorite was, was the cicada um, because we would go and visit my great grandmother at the time who lived in Colorado in the United States. And, and it was surrounded always in the spring by cicadas, which make this horrific screaming noise if you've ever been around them. And um, something that I really loved was just the idea that they were so weird. If, if you've ever seen when they're like incredibly weird looking and that really kind of piqued my interest and so I had. Are they um? Are they the things that are like they a bit like grasshoppers or like the grasshoppers that we would have in the UK? Is it not necessarily? I think or? you're probably thinking of locusts, but but cicadas are the ones that oh. um 
bury their larva or their eggs that become larva underground and they actually stay underground for anywhere from eight to 15 years. And that what ends up happening is after that they emerge um, to mate and that mating call is the scream that you hear. And in Japan, you know, I won't go into too much detail here, but in Japan, they're uh, revered as sacred because of this long lifespan spent underground. Well, oh my yeah. God, that's terrifying <laughs> to me. That I get the, I get the heebie-jeebies from, um, I, I don't know, teeth really freak me out, but also fascinate me at the same time. But I get really freaked out by the idea, you know where, because children mm-hmm. have all their teeth waiting, yep. just waiting there in their in their jaws, in their in their skulls, and that the thinking about that really freaks me out. And this is now, <laughs> now I've got a new thing. <laughs> now I'm gonna think, oh my god, all those cicadas, um, on the ground waiting for their perfect time yeah. to emerge. So they, so, <laughs> so you know, when that feeds back into to the kind of being a witch and the spirituality and symbolism around that, you know, because in Japan they are a symbol of of hope and rebirth you know, because it's such a long cycle. Um, and so they're they're really sacred there, which I find fascinating. That's a much yeah. better way of, of looking at it rather than thinking about them just watching yeah. and waiting. <laughs> that was so interesting. So where, um, so have you used any uh, cicadas in any of your work before? Like where do you tend to source your insects from and do you have any favorites? Well, my, or... my primary, um, artistry as an entomological framer, as you'd say, or an insect taxidermist is around Lepidoptera and Coleoptera, which are both butterflies, moths, and beetles. Um, So those are my primary focus, but cicadas are dear and near to my heart, um, to the point where I even have one tattooed on me. I have used them in my art before. I haven't sold them in my art before, but I have quite a few framed on my my wall. to go back to your question of where I source them, it's um, this is going to be a very long, long explanation. Um, a lot of my um, butterflies, I'll use butterflies as an example, my butterflies and moths, if not, um, for example, moths live caught in the UK um, are then given to me from a butterfly farm here in the UK. Um, so most of my specimens are sourced from within um within England, uh, the south of England, specifically um, Sussex, um, at a butterfly farm that my mentor's friend owns. So I get a lot of my specimens from them. And then a lot of the time I also buy in or are given um, cocoons, chrysalises, pupae, where I rear and raise them myself and they're emerged and then I then turn them into frames. So other than that, they're papered specimens that are sourced from um, ethically, hopefully ethically sourced, and I'll get into that, from places around the world, South America, Philippines, China, for example. Wow. So you actually, you raise them and and build a whole relationship with, or with with some of them anyway, like, so you're gifted these, um, or buy these what they call chrysalis pupae Um, Uh, and then raise them yourself how do you find that then having that relationship Um, at first it was more difficult (laughs) without having to get into exactly what I do which I probably will in in a little bit it's you you do build a relationship with them because they're so beautiful and intricate and the process of a caterpillar even becoming a butterfly itself on a scientific molecular level is insane Um, you know so if for those listeners who are not aware, when a caterpillar becomes, uh, makes a cocoon or a chrysalis, depending if it's a moth or a butterfly, um, basically they build this, this solid wall around themselves. And then what happens is on a molecular level, uh, they break down into a goo, 
and that goo, that DNA and that structure of that goo in, the, in layman's terms here, I don't wanna to get too scientific, then slowly becomes a butterfly or a moth where the body is built, the wings are built, the colors, the scales, the antenna, they all come and they are all formed within that goo, which they then emerge from that cocoon or chrysalis as a butterfly or moth. Um, in regards to beetles, coleoptera, similar in a way they create a uh, larval like cocoon kind of hard shell around themselves where then they're emerged in that goo and come out. And I think that that's gross, but also beautiful in a way and, and also incredibly complex and difficult to kind of wrap your brain around. Yeah, amazing. Because I think I remember reading a couple of years ago that they, they the infamous <laughs> they, who do we, we don't know. Um, obviously, I should probably find a scientific reference for it, but um, they whoever was doing the experiment found that there was not not a level of consciousness necessarily but it was like the same as if like as if, if it were a human going through that process it was the same human mm -hmm. completely turned to goo still there then being themselves as this goo <laughs> to then become their next and, and it yeah. blew my mind yeah and 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 I think it's really it's interesting to think about and I think that symbology as well as a witch is really great because when you're both a witch and an entomologist, I think there's that level of understanding of that transformation and it's very symbolic. Um, and so I think they really do overlap in my practice and my kind of day-to-day -day life when it comes to working with insects. And, you know, I think I might have a level of understanding for them that maybe some amateur entomologists might not have because of that connection and, and the idea that, you know, there is that transformation from goo to thing. <laughs> yeah. And that idea that you can you can be broken down to almost nothing, but still your fundamental self is still is still there and still strong and will be there when you come out the other side of it. Once you put piece yourself back together and you've grown your beautiful wings, um, you are you are there. That's you and yourself leveled up or in your next and your truest. Uh, form, and and there's interesting ways that happen is in just like in human nature in in the animal kingdom and in the insect kingdom as well. There are um, nature's oopsies and one of those oopsies that can happen when the butterfly is turning them their DNA is is kind of slewing around in this goo <laughs> for example is, is something that's called bilateral I'm going to butcher the name of this bilateral gynandromorphism there we go um, and this is where a butterfly emerges I want to I want to guess is it that one of the wings is close there? or you're very close so the it has, it has two wings. It's a full-bodied insect or butterfly, for example. This is when I'm using butterflies for an example here. And that happens is that they emerge and one side is a female and one side is a male. And so they have both genetic parts as well within, within the insect, within the butterfly. Um, and so you end up getting two different colors because in most butterflies in, in the natural insect world, um, the, the males and the females have different colors and are different sizes. And so to have one come out, emerge from a chrysalis or, or a moth, emerge from a cocoon and have both parts is incredibly rare. Um, and those, those specimens can go for upwards of thousands of pounds as well. Yeah. Wow. And it's and so beautiful as well. And you think, again, thinking about the symbology of it, where these, um, they, they're representing two sides of Mm -hmm. of the same thing you know that they're, they're they're representing that duality of of everything <laughs> amazing okay so that sort of we touched it well I mean we touched on it slightly um but I'm sure anybody listening or anybody that knows knows you and your practice um already might see a bit of a disjuncture between uh, being a witch who who loves all beings um 
and then also being a taxidermist so especially where you have reared the specimens yourself um obviously you know it's going to be a difficult yeah. topic to cover um and but clearly there needs to be a uh, an incident or well, an incident that makes it sound super <laughs> it is an incident like premeditated <laughs> but um a an event that needs to take place to uh, enable them to be yes. set in um, frame. <laughs> and for this I'm going to have to explain how an insect is set in the first place um and then I can kind of get into the yeah. nitty gritty and kind of how I see it from my perspective a little bit so with entomological framing, so as an am amateur entomologist or person who has interest in insects, one of the things is the preservation of those insects. Um, and this we can thank the Victorians for, um, with their weird obsession with animals and insects, um, obviously in a time where we didn't have Google. So the only way to access being able to see these um, animals like zebras or lions or these beautiful butterflies from the Amazon was to preserve them in a way and that was taxidermy and so that's where we have all these museums that came into place that were hugely popular where people of the average could come and see these things that they would not be able to unless they traveled the world and so that is where the Victorians really had the push to preserve these animals to bring it to the people. Now that did create some controversy, controversy pardon me, in the fact that um, there was a lot of cultivation um, and kind of endangering of these species. So as an entomolo entomological framer, um, what I do is I have two ways that I set an insect. I will either rear it myself and set it, or I will get what is called uh, a papered specimen. So this is where I have a insect we'll use butterflies in this example because it's easier. I will have a papered butterfly come in um, in what we call a paper triangle. Um, and it's, what, what does papered, papered mean? Because <laughs> it made my mind go. To, it's, oh, hard, no. it's hard to explain. So basically um, the butterfly is vertical. Um, so its wings are folded and it's dried um, flat. And then it is folded into a square. You imagine a square piece of paper folded in half to a triangle. It is then put placed within that triangle, papered and dried, and then is is then shipped off to be set. Does that make sense? Uh, like as if it's yeah. clapping. So it's clapped together, it's wings, it's flat. It's hard to visualize, I know. <laughs> yeah, I was just imagining folding this tiny. I was like, surely it wouldn't unfold. But yeah, no, I think if yeah, think about it as in the it's clap. I'm doing. I know you can't see. Yeah. I'm doing so most. imagine like getting your hands together and yeah, clapping, and that's the wings. That's the wings together, um, and then it's dried and put into that paper triangle, and so that paper triangle then comes to me, and I take it out of the paper triangle and I inject it with hot boiling water, and that hot boiling water then relaxes the insect. And to understand how this works, you have to understand that butterflies breathe through their wings. Their lungs are attached to their wings. It's how they fly. Um, so when you inject them, it relaxes all the veins in the wings. And it, it's dead at this point. It's dead at this point, yes. I forgot to mention, yes. <laughs> it is dead, it is dead and dried at this point. Um, so then it is then injected with hot water where I then relax it and put it in, in a relaxing chamber uh, for about 20 minutes. And then I have what is called a setting board. So imagine a, uh, a wooden board with paper on top, a little bit of cork and paper on top, and there's this kind of ridge running in the middle of it. So that ridge is where the body of the butterfly sits when it is pinned. And then the wings are then spread out onto the board. And then there is paper that is then used on top of that 
and then the wing is then put into place with tweezers and then pinned in a certain way to, to make it presentable. And then that board with that butterfly once set is then set to dry for two to three weeks before it is taken off the board and then put into a frame. Does that make sense? It does make okay. sense. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard when I'm trying to like, you can't visualize it sometimes. <laughs> no, I can see it. I think as you were talking us through it, I can, I can see see how that that happens so what um what have what's the difference then between that and uh the specimens that you rear, rear myself okay so i mean other than obviously having complete ownership and oversight of how they are raised and the life that they have before mm -hmm. <laughs> so the biggest question i get asked is do they live out their life and the unfortunate easy answer to this is no and the reason being when I rear a butterfly myself, any butterflies you see, and I'm going to use butterflies again as an example here, just to make it easier. Um, when you see a butterfly in a frame on Etsy or Instagram, that beautiful butterfly with its beautiful full wings and full color and straight antenna, that is a butterfly that has been put down in gentle terms within 24 hours of its life. And the reason being is butterfly wings are incredibly delicate. And so those wings, when they've been flying around for over 36 to 48 hours, start to what we call chip. So they, they take chunks and bits and pieces out of their wings. Uh, they might lose an antenna, for example, they might get caught up in something. And that quality of that butterfly is then not there. Um, it's a sad reality, but people don't want a framed tattered butterfly. They want a pretty preserved how it would look in nature butterfly. And so that quality of the, within that 24 hours or after is called A1. And that A1 is the top quality of a butterfly. So when I rear them myself, they live for 24 to 36 hours. And then my process is to put them to sleep by putting them in my freezer, which is a way that they slowly, you know, as an insect, they slowly go to sleep. Um, and then they remain in my freezer until I take them out to then set them. Because when you take them out of the freezer, obviously they thaw and then they're easy to maneuver. Um, I myself consider that more ethical, you know, and that begs the question, what is ethical? And the reason I say this is because some people will use chemical methods um, where they use chemicals to inject into live insects to um, put them down, which I, which does not settle right with me, <laughs> um, or they um, crush them, they crush their abdomens um, to instantly put them down. Oh, wouldn't that, dis wouldn't that destroy them as well? Um, their abdomens, no, because you don't see their abdomens when, or their um, thorax when you are putting them in the frame. Um, and a lot of the time, field researchers, entomologists, that's how they do it with moths and butterflies. They catch them out of the air, they pinch them, they paper them, and then that's then, uh, you know, taken off for scientific research, for example. Okay. So, yeah, I know it's, there is a lot to it that a lot of people don't talk about. And there is a reason for this because people are uncomfortable with the thought of something dying. Yeah. And it's that like, idea it's the of the same thing as people eating sausages, but not wanting to see how they are made. <laughs> exactly. It's absolutely that. And a lot of people don't, and I know a lot of people in this community, in the entomological, you know, framing community that don't talk about it. 
because they don't want to lose that business, you know, and I think that that in itself is unethical. <laughs> um, if you if you're going to be doing this, you need to be open and be able to talk about the nitty gritty and kind of the darker side to what happens behind closed doors before that butterfly is then put into a pretty frame and sold to you. Yeah. And I think that that's incredibly important. And although it makes people uncomfortable, the, the simple answer is I do, even though I rear some of them myself, I do put them down after 24 hours. Um, they are put in my freezer and then they are framed. How long would they live like without? Ah. Um, depends. Every insect um, is different. Every butterfly is different. Uh, my experience, I do, I do have to say, um, I do let some of them live. <laughs> um, I don't, put down every single one um, and some of them don't emerge right either some of them emerge crippled um, and I just don't feel right about that so I will let some of those ones live as well um, and they will live probably anywhere from 5 to 12 13 days um, depending on the species there are some species uh, for example silk moths don't even have mouth parts um, so they don't even eat um, basically they are there to emerge, mate, lay eggs, and then they die. That's their life cycle. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it, some are even born, you know, and nature has done that for a reason. That's, you know, they're not supposed to eat. They're just there. The butterfly themselves, the moth themselves are not the insect. The caterpillar itself is the insect. Um, you know, the butterfly is just mating purpose. And it's pretty and it's flashy and it's beautiful in nature for that purpose. That's so interesting. So really, they've kind of they have lived already, the mm -hmm. caterpillar, and then absolutely okay. Yeah, because when you think about it, actually, when you think uh, it was saying that you put them to sleep within twenty four hours, actually only twenty four hours within hatching from the or whatever the word is from emerging from mm -hmm. the cocoon. But actually, they have had because it kind of makes you think. Oh, well, they've only lived, they've only had a chance to live a day, but they haven't. They've had all of their time as a caterpillar yeah absolutely when you when you reach the point in the process where you need to put them to sleep <laughs> do you go through any kind of rituals or how does your witchcraft practice kind of come into come into it at that point or does it it, it does but also I have had to learn to separate myself from it and the reason being is because although I know what's happening to them and I know, you know, what they will be turned into, I still have that immense amount of guilt that comes with doing what I do. And because of that, um, you know, I do have an, a kind of inner ritual where I, I do kind of tell myself almost as a mantra, you know, you're being made into something beautiful. It's okay. And I do apologize. You should hear me. It's ridiculous. I'll be taking this butterfly out of its cage to put it in a box to, to be put into the freezer. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I love you. I'm so sorry. And it is, it's very, it is very guilt-ridden what I do. And I think that, you know, I think that does add that layer of care to it in the things that I do, not only in my practice when I am making the frames as well, because there's that extra layer of, of love and knowing that I have been attached to this certain insect or this certain creature, shall we say. So, I mean, not so much a, a full-on ritual but definitely where I have to remind myself that what I am doing is not only for the beauty and preservation of the insect itself but also the conservation and the education thereafter. That's really interesting so because what my next question was going to be um, you know there might be some people listening or others that kind of um, have opinions on taxidermy mm -hmm. and, and things like that 
and thinking well why 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 do it in the first place especially if if um like yourself you feel that guilt and you kind of um and you have that kind of connection with the uh with the insect um what's the what's not what's the point but like what's the purpose of preserving them in this way like what purpose does it serve to preserve them in this way i think it is you know first of all the conservation yeah and preservation of, of the species itself um there is unfortunately a lot of insects that are threatened by international trade there is also a threat in regards to its habitat where the insects are i can use the south of england as an example there's a lot of heathland that gets burned or destroyed for housing or um, trails and things like that and that ends up impacting an insect's mating ground or um, for example where they lay their eggs and that then depletes a species um, and it's about being able to preserve them to educate people on that and educate people where they're coming from. Um, there is unfortunately a huge black market in regards to specifically moths and butterflies. Um, well, not necessarily, I guess all insects, um, because there is a lot of money to be made and there's a lot of greed within, unfortunately, within the entomological um, side. And, and I think that people don't see that you know, they see a pretty blue butterfly in a frame and I see it as this beautiful species that's come from the Amazon that, you know, needs to be preserved and needs to be talked about because it's becoming endangered because of that threat of international trade in that black, black market. Um, and a lot of people um, don't understand that it, within taxidermy animal and insect, there is a lot of things that you cannot do for example, um, there are certain licenses and CITES that you have to get, CITES being a certain license that you spend a lot of money to buy to be able to sell one single butterfly. Um, for example, there is a butterfly I can think of the top of my head that you would need to spend three grand on before you even sold it to anyone, before you were even allowed to put it in a frame. Mm. And I think a lot, yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand the, again, that behind the scenes as to what goes on. And so that preservation and education of the species is, is the forefront of why I do it. It's beautiful, yes, and it's gorgeous, and you want one because, you know, maybe it represents something to you, but you really have to think that there is an entire world out there where these, these insects may not be there forever, and we really need to push to be able to can conserve them. And there are places like butterfly farms, for example, like the one that I spoke about earlier, where my, my mentor's friend who, who does that, it, he, he breeds and, and hatches these butterflies in the, where people can come into the, into his butterfly house and observe them flying around and see them um, where they wouldn't be able to. And that's an education in itself. You know, we need to preserve these insects. If the if, or if your driving purpose for this um, this kind of activity is for you know education and preserving the you know and kind of like sharing that those the beauty of those insects and which I I totally respect. Do you have any particular thoughts about people collecting them? Like, do you do you find that collections should be people should have that kind of personal uh, reflection on why they're collecting and why they're buying these specimens as well as where they come from you know on, on both sides of of the coin you've got the likes of yourselves who create this for a very specific reason and then like you mentioned there's the, a whole you know unethical side of of the business where people are doing it to kind of make money and capitalize on sort of quirky interests I suppose what's your approach to people's collections and collecting of these things and 
what 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 do you, would you say that people should kind of stop to take a take a moment and think about before they buy a specimen and also you know if they already have a specimen collection that's a great question actually um and something that i harp on about a lot <laughs> um specifically um people who i myself am a collector as well i have a collection going um it just kind of comes with it um but obviously like i do it and i know the species so it's a little bit different but when someone is buying a collection and has a collection yes i, I think that it is important to educate yourself in every aspect whether it be witchcraft or insects <laughs> I think it is incredibly important to know where you are getting it and the process of what happens before it's in that frame and on your wall. And something that, um, again, that question that I get all the time is where does it come from? Is it ethically sourced? You know, does it live out its full life? And those questions are things that you should be asking absolutely um, before buying a specimen. Because a lot of the time, and someone, this is going to be controversial, a lot of people aren't going to like to hear this, but a lot of the time when you go on Instagram as an example, and you're scrolling through, let's say, taxidermy, and you see a beautiful um, snake skeleton in a frame, and you go, oh, that's gorgeous, I want it, and you buy it, and you put it on your wall. The reality of that is, is that snake was one of thousands that was culled um, in a not so nice way that then made itself to someone who then glued it to a piece of paper and put it in a frame. That wasn't a snake that was someone's pet that died, that they spent years, you know, <laughs> in, in dirt and then fished out and cleaned. That's, that's unfortunately not the reality of it. And so if you are a collector, if you're listening to this, if you're a collector of the macabre and you like things like that, you like taxidermy, ask questions. Where did it come from? How was it sourced? Um, you know, what is the process of it? And, and educate yourself. Um, I'm not saying boycott it if you're uncomfortable with it, but I, it's definitely an education that you need to, to be giving yourself and, and looking into. Um, creating relationships as well with the people that are doing your art, maybe finding a specific artist that you really like. And you can get them. I get um, people asking me to do um, things for them separate from what I'm selling. Um, maybe they want a specific butterfly or a specific insect. And you can do that. You can ask people. And I think that that's, that's important. I don't mind people having a collection, but there is that education that needs to be had. Yeah, I think it sort of, it goes hand in hand with um, how, oh, anyway, my own personal views and how we should all approach um, everything. So I know there's always a, a big discussion, especially in the witchcraft community, about ethically sourcing crystals. Um, mm -hmm. but it's also it comes down to food um, everything that you everything yeah. that you might buy and just having that kind of really mindful head-on <laughs> you know really mindfully purchasing these things um, and finding out where they come from and reflecting on why it is that you, you you're buying it why is it that that you that you want it like I've, I've got um, a ram skull um, oh, we've got a ram skull in our bedroom that we've named Kevin mm -hmm. Um, well, yes, because we always have to talk about him. <laughs> yeah. But he came from a taxidermist who um, everything is so traceable, and um, and she's really transparent about where she gets them from. Like he was um, Kevin had died, like or died naturally in in a in a field, and you know she's got these relationships with owners of livestock and like you know people around who then mm -hmm. kind of give her these specimens once once they're ready, you know, once they've already departed. So. I find that I think you've, you've kind of got to be able to trace something end to end. I think it's the same as 
buying when you buy clothes as well like not just buying oh, yeah. from I mean obviously it comes down to what you can afford and I don't want to get into that kind of conversation because the point of this conversation is, is whether <laughs> you you know whether you know where it really comes from and it's interesting that you mentioned that because my mentor himself is an animal taxidermist and insect and it primarily animal that's his business that's what so, he does. I thought you just said he is an insect <laughs> Oh no, Phil would hate me for that. Um, he actually is an insect. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's actually yeah. Oh my god. But he himself is is a taxidermist, and he you know has to be transparent with people uh, for what he does. And he gets you know there are those people that are just dead set against it and just find what he does you know morally and ethically wrong. And I get that. I get a lot of people think what I do is morally and ethically wrong as well. And again, it's that conversation that needs to be had. But without him teaching me and without him being my mentor, it would not have opened me up to this world. And, you know, I'm incredibly grateful and thankful for what he has done for me. The, the, the shows that he's taken me to the places that I've seen the insects that he's showed me that I didn't know existed or could exist. Um, it's very, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful world out there and nature is crazy, man. Like it's insane. So yeah, it is interesting. You have to be very transparent. And I think it is your duty in a way as a taxidermist, animal or insect, or what have you, to have that transparency with your clientele or um, with people that ask those questions. Yeah, absolutely. The specimens, I mean, obviously it's all organic matter. They deteriorate over time, don't they? Oh, yeah. So this is another interesting one. So butterflies themselves won't actually deteriorate. Insects themselves won't actually uh, deteriorate unless uh, a force of nature comes in. There are things like mites, for example, that eat dead material. Um, carpet beetle eats dead material. So we have preventative measures. I do myself, a lot of people who have insect collections, um, we use certain almost, it's like a mothball. And those are used to deter other insects um, from eating the dead material. But then also you have factors like moisture and sunlight as well. So when I sell a frame to someone, I always tell them, you know, keep it out of direct sunlight, keep it out of moisture, don't put it in your bathroom um, and make sure that it, the tape that I tape the back of the frame up with is intact. And if it's not intact, you have to then replace that because other uh, micro insects can get in there and start eating away at the um, framed insect. So thinking about the ethics of purchasing these kinds of specimens and items, um, it's also knowing, or a big thing about it is going to be knowing how to maintain and, and take care of them. Because if you're if you're going to you're thinking about okay, I'm going to buy a butterfly, and uh, I've I've done put all the work in, I've looked at where it comes from, how it's been reared, how it's been put to sleep, um, you know, traced it all the way all the way through its journey, and then to stop that as soon as you get it, and then you know it ends up in a I don't know, ends up in a charity shop or ends up getting binned or something because it's sort of, mm -hmm. and that that makes that's the heartbreaking bit for me, I think, where yeah. they're not taken care of. So, yeah, what would your I mean, I know you've kind of gone through making sure that the tape is intact. But is there anything else that people need to be mindful of when they when they are kind of housing these things? Yeah, you have to be aware of where you're putting it. You have to, you know, like I said, direct sunlight, even sometimes indirect sunlight can affect the framed insect, mainly butterflies and moths, wherever there is that pigmentation within um, a butterfly, for example, you know, there's those, those light scales on the top that reflect and create the colors that we see on the butterfly itself. And those are easily damaged, easily damaged by sunlight, even five hours in sunlight can start to um, diminish the color of an of a butterfly or moth and so that's important to keep it out of sunlight and make sure it's 
it's in a room where it, maybe it is appreciated, but again, that lack of moisture, moisture can destroy the paper, it can destroy the, the insect itself. Um, like I said, when I do set the insect, it is then dried. So any moisture will, will kind of morph and bring that and distort the insect within the frame itself. And also just taking care of it, take care of the glass, take care of the, the tape. I have seen some pretty awful things as, as a, <laughs> in my two, almost three years of doing this in charity shops, for example, in other people's houses at entom entomology shows. Um, you know, you see people have just not taken care of their species and it's, it's really sad. Make sure not to knock it. That's the other thing. Just, you know, put it in a safe place where cats, dogs, other animals cannot get to it. Birds. I don't know what kind of pets you have, but just make sure that it's safe in an area where you can enjoy it, but you're aware of how to take care of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so final question about all of this, um, it's just, again, how you I mean, are you quite a spiritual person? Do you find that you like to do anything that helps the spirit kind of pass on? Or do you kind of have any, I mean, obviously we don't want to get into the whole thing of spirit rehabilitation because that could be a whole episode on its own. But is there is there anything that you kind of do or integrate into your practice when you do these things? Or, you know, do you have a relationship with a specific deity while you're kind of doing it? Or does that not really factor into it? Okay, so I don't, particularly have any specific deity or anything that I use but I do have a ritual when I'm setting or framing the insect I just feel like it's really important to put myself in a, in a good mental space also creative space as well um, so uh, I will light a candle incense I usually actually cleanse my space as well before I start um, just to kind of clear any energies um, that may be pent up that I don't kind of want melding with what I'm doing I want to light space when I'm creating because I think that's important and it's also like this is this process is incredibly difficult and it's quite a lot of hard work as well um, setting an insect and framing it because I don't just put it in a frame I also use the idea of the floriography or the language of flowers so I use a lot of flowers and things in that process and I think it's kind of beautiful in that way and so when when I'm going into that space mentally it is important that I have those um, that I bring my practice into that by, like I said, cleansing. Um, music is something also, I'm very much a, a music listen, listener. It's something that I use in my practice um, a lot of the time for meditation and things like that. And so that is brought in um, dependent on my mood. <laughs> One day it might be um, like a uh, meditation <laughs> blend of music, or it may be um, I'm blasting Taylor Swift. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that's, I do have somewhat of a ritual when it comes to that. And, and my spirituality does kind of overlap um, to give not only the insect a proper um, kind of, I guess, you know, carrying on of carrying on its life, but also for me on a personal level, being able to just sit back, relax and be creative. Yeah, I love that. Well, this has been this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for sharing so much. No um, worries. <laughs> I had no no idea because I, I always kind of look and I see these things like um insects set in things and I'm like, oh, I really like because like, I love to look at it. It really like I don't know fascinates me. Makes me want to look up everything about about the insect. Um, but something's always sort of put me off. I've been a bit worried about like you know what, where does it come from? How do I know kind of thing? Um, how do I know? how it's been done you know but actually this has been super super informative and I think that's going to give um every, hopefully any other listeners that have been kind of thinking about it or um 
I don't know, a good a good insight into it and make more mindful purchases if they are so inclined to do so or not. <laughs> you know, if they think actually I'm not I'm not here for that that kind of thing. And that's also that's also fine. Um so super interesting. Thank you. Before we wrap it up though, I need to know a question that I've asked mm. everybody else. Who if there was gonna be a uh obscure witch movie, who would play you? <laughs> <laughs> in that movie. Oh, Winona, Winona Ryder, hands down. That's such a quick answer as well. You knew. You think? You oh, I know. I know. <laughs> I love it. I can see that actually. She'd play a good. She'd play a good test. She's she's weird. She's spooky. I, I have vibes. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I love Winona Ryder. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that answered your question. It absolutely did. I loved it. I loved it. It was okay. just straight to it. Like no, hands down, Winona Ryder. Full stop. See you later. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> all right and on that note then we will wrap it up here thank you again Tess uh, it's been an absolute joy I mean I know I speak to you every day but <laughs> yeah <laughs> never never about this so yeah no no not about this uh, and I've had a lot of fun and I just hope that um through this um I get to spread a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of education absolutely thanks again thank you again so much for listening today um, and listening in again you'll be very pleased to know well I hope you are anyway I'm very excited to tell you that the Witchology subscriptions are now open uh, so if you like this episode and you'd like to enjoy it ad-free along with some extra bonus episodes then you can become a Witchologist join the coven on our website at witchologymagazine.com to find out more